We are in Colossians. If you take your Bibles and turn there to the first chapter. And before I forget, um, next week, starting next week, our Wednesday night study is going to be starting at 6 o'clock instead of 6.30. Um, just in a couple weeks, we'll be starting up Team Kid, and the Wednesday night activities there, and that's going to be starting at 6, and we're trying to have these things kind of match up a bit so parents that drop their kids off for Team Kid can come and participate in uh, Bible study here on Wednesday nights, so we're moving it back to the start time of uh, Team Kid as well. So uh, Alistair will probably send it out in an email this week, just to remind everybody, but I thought I would mention it here. Next, Starting next week, 6 o'clock instead of 6.30, okay? Um, so last week, we started in uh, verse 3, made it through the first, all the way through the first sentence of verse 5, so I mean quite a long ways. And if you remember, this is Paul began, what Paul began to say after his opening greeting in the first two verses. He, he started the main portion of his letter by telling the Colossian Christians how he prays for them. And he prays thanking God for them. Why? Why does he pray thanking God for them? Because of the hope laid up for them in heaven. Okay, they are Christians. And we looked at the evidence that Paul used to conclude that they were genuine Christians. They had professed faith in Christ, first of all, and they had a love for other Christians, a love for the brethren. And those were, if you remember, those were two proofs or evidences that John listed in uh, 1 John, as we just finished going through that study as well. And and those are the same criteria that Paul used in determining uh, that these people were Christians. And so now, picking up where we left off, uh, in the second part of verse 5 is where we'll be, and we'll see that this is not a new topic, uh, but Paul's continuing by explaining or clarifying what he had just told them. He, he just told them how he thanks God because of the hope laid up for them in heaven, uh, and that uh, hope is the subject of his next statement in the rest of verse 5, and continuing. In fact, this, his next statement is a long sentence. A really long sentence that takes us through the rest of verse 5, all of verse 6, and halfway verse through verse 7. So let's read those verses and on through to verse 9 as well tonight. So starting uh, verse 5, and we'll go through verse 9 in chapter 1 of Colossians. Because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Okay, now. That kind of sounds out of place because that was the end of a sentence from what he said before. He's thanking God for them because of the hope laid up for them in heaven. He says, Of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing, as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth. Just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant, He is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of His will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for this night. We thank you, Lord, that we can come before you in song and in prayer 
and in opening your word, we thank you for the joy of being your children, uh, being the church together, Lord, and we're so grateful for it. And Father, we thank you for your Holy Spirit who leads us into all truth. So as we read your word, and whether it be here or at home, Lord, we can trust that you will teach us the meaning of your word through your spirit. Help us as we study, help us as we um, have questions tonight and we discuss things with one another, Lord, that would honor you. I pray, Father, that all of us would always desire to rightly understand your word. We praise you for it and thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Paul says, Of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel. And the words, of this you have heard before, are a reference back to the subject of the hope laid up for them in heaven. He he brought that subject up earlier, and that's what he's referring to here when he says, of this um, they have heard before. So in other words, he's, he's not telling them anything new. He's acknowledging that they know it, and he's taking the opportunity here to remind them of this truth at the same time. Not only do you know it, but he's going to remind them of it, and he's going to expand on it a little bit, remind them of things they already know. Um, you know all about the hope laid up for you in heaven, is basically what he's saying, because you heard it and believed it. Um, when did they hear about it? Before. In the past. I don't know how much in the past, but in the past, they heard it. Um, and, and I want to ask a question here in, in that verse there. What does Paul identify as the mode of hearing? What was the mode of hearing? There's two. He gives the same thing, two different names for the same thing in the last part of verse 5. What was that? The word of truth, which is the gospel. Right. Same thing. In other words, when the gospel is heard, the word of truth is heard. And when the word of truth is heard, in the gospel, people learn about the hope that is laid up for them in heaven for those who put their trust in that gospel to save them. We know there is value in being reminded um, how much of Scripture is someone calling on the people to remember a lot, all through the Old Testament and New Testament. We, we need to remember. There's value in that. There's value in hearing the truth and in, uh, in, in hearing that truth repeated over again. And that's why we, we continue coming, coming on the Lord's Day to church. We continue coming Wednesday nights or any other Bible studies you go to. We keep coming, and we really do keep hearing the same thing. It always comes back to the gospel, and that's why we are believers in the first place. That's what gave us new life in Christ. And so we come to gather and to hear what God has said. We want to learn more about Him. Um, we benefit from hearing the same truth repeatedly. And that's what Paul is doing in all of this. And in Philippians 3.1, Paul said, to write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you to be reminded. The people of God need repetition. So if someone says to you that they are sharing the gospel, what words or phrases would you expect to hear from them? Someone's going to share the gospel, what words or phrases would you expect to hear? Just fire them off if you want. Salvation, okay? Forgiveness. Repentance, absolutely. Grace, somebody said. Jesus, yeah. Jesus probably needs to be in there. Yeah. <laughs> Hope, absolutely. The cross, okay. 
Okay? And the resurrection, absolutely, absolutely necessary. Anything else? What was that? Love? Okay. Yeah. Faith, right? We'll hear about faith, belief, um, obedience. Um, what was that? Hope? Yeah, I think somebody said that, but like I said, we need to repeat things. <laughs> sin. Yeah, you know, sin. We need to hear about sin. Um, and so those and many others are part of what we should be hearing in the gospel. Um, and if you want to turn with me real quick to Romans chapter 1. And look at Romans chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. Again, this is Paul writing here, the same author. And these verses perfectly describe how the gospel works. In Romans 1, verses 16 and 17, Paul says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Right? The, the gospel itself is powerful. The proclamation of the gospel is what God uses to bring His people to saving faith. In that proclamation, man learns that he is dead in his trespasses and sins. And in that proclamation, man learns that righteous perfection is required for salvation. And in that proclamation, man learns that the only righteous perfection ever earned was earned by Christ Himself through His own perfect life. And in that proclamation, man learns that he needs to be clothed in that alien righteousness, as Martin Luther put it, that, that righteous perfection, that is a righteousness that is foreign to, to a person. It's not his own. It doesn't come from him. And in that proclamation, man learns that it is by faith that he must ob- obtain and be clothed in the righteous perfection of Christ for salvation. And this is what is known as imputed righteousness. In other words, we exchange our utter sinfulness and our worthless, filthy rags of self-righteousness for the perfect righteousness of Jesus. His righteousness is imputed or ascribed uh, or attributed to, to us as if it was ours. As if we lived the perfect life that Christ lived. And the Scripture says this is done by grace through faith. To take away the boasting of man. Right? Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. The repentant sinner recognizes this and is ready to cast aside all their own dead works to be justified by God because of the righteousness of Christ that He gives in order to be saved. And, and if you turn over into Philippians chapter 3 with me, uh, you'll see you know, Paul, Paul gave us a picture, a picture of this in the form of his own testimony. In my Bible, it's just flipping back one page. I don't know about yours. But Philippians chapter 3, verses 4 through 9, <clears throat> look at what Paul says there about 
about himself and the conclusion that he, that he has come to here. Philippians 3, verse 4. Though I myself has re- have reason for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For His sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in Him not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. See, that transfer of righteousness is completely and totally necessary for salvation. But that transfer is impossible without faith. It would be impossible without Christ coming and leading a, a, living a perfectly sinless life and without His death on the cross and His resurrection. And that's why Paul is thankful when he heard of their faith in Christ. It encompasses all of that. So when Paul says that they have heard the gospel, the word of truth, he means that they have heard all these things and believed and were saved. And therefore, he is rejoicing. He is thankful to God for what has come about in their lives by God's working. And that's why we need to know that the word gospel or good news, it needs to be understood in a comprehensive way. There's a lot to it. And Paul is thankful to God that they have understood these things. And can the gospel be oversimplified? Do you think, if so, how can it be oversimplified? What do you think? It can't be oversimplified? Okay. Why not? It is simple. Yeah, there is, there is a, a simplicity to the gospel. It's not that it's necessarily simple in how God accomplished it, but there is a simplicity to it in a sense. But we can, we can twist it a bit and, and take away even the simplicity when we make the gospel about Jesus died so you can be rich or something like that. It's a, it's a totally different gospel, right? We don't want to do that. Uh, about the gospel, Paul lets them know that it has, he's reminding them now, it has come to you, and it's, now it's going out, and he says, in the whole world. There are two words there, the Greek words there, that are translated for that phrase, in the whole world. And uh, the first one can be used individually, meaning each, every, any, or all, or collectively as some of all types. And then the second one, cosmos, can be translated as world or the inhabitants of earth. So in the whole world has the idea that the gospel is going out to every human being in the same way. Okay? In other words, the gospel transcends ethnic groups, uh, geographical areas or cultural and political boundaries. It's for all of humanity. And he's saying it's going out 
into all the world. So what what does our passage there say the gospel is doing in the whole world and among the Colossians? If you look back at our Colossians passage there, what does it say the gospel is doing in the whole world and among the Colossians? Bearing fruit and growing, or bearing fruit and increasing, some of your translations might say. It's coming to all men everywhere the same way and is bearing fruit and increasing. He wanted them to know that, that this is the pattern. Okay, the, the same way it came to them through the preaching of the Word, it is now going out to all the world in the same way. The preaching of the world, Word is going out and the same result, the same fruit is coming about. And what is the fruit that the proclamation of the gospel is bearing? Souls are being saved. And notice the the ongoing nature of what he's talking about here. It it did not go out and bear fruit and then stop. Right? It is bearing fruit and increasing. Look again at that language there in in verse 6, where after he said it's bearing fruit and increasing, he says, as it also does among you, since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth. And when Paul says, among you, he means that the gospel is continuing to be preached among the Colossian people. The fruit is more Colossian believers being added to the church, and it has been doing this since it was first proclaimed to them. This is an ongoing thing. It speaks not only of new believers being added but to increase the increasing maturity of those believers. It's not just about adding people. It goes with what we're talking about on Sundays now with making disciples. It's, it's increasing in, people are increasing in Christian maturity in their spiritual lives. It's all part of the fruit being produced by the word of truth. Again, this is not a, a simplistic gospel, i.e., uh, just believe and be saved without talking about sin or something like that. You can't, I could just say those words to somebody and they would believe what, right? Why? Why do I need to be saved? There, there needs to be some sort of explanation around that. We have to talk about those words that we mentioned earlier, the things we would expect to hear when it comes to the gospel. And you could tell somebody, just ask Jesus into your heart and you'll be saved. You haven't told them why they need to be saved. They don't think they need to be saved, right? They're good people. So they think. What does he say about the grace of God in truth? They understood it. They, that salvation is by the grace of God through faith. The whole gospel was being preached, and that is always Paul's focus. The whole gospel being preached is always his focus. Acts 20, 24 says, But I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. That's his life. His life work is the ministry of the gospel. And understanding the role of the grace of God and the gospel is is also necessary. The role of the grace of God. And that understanding must be based in truth. Right? In truth. But what's a couple of simple answers? What did Jesus say truth is? Remember? couple things I'm thinking in particular that Jesus said truth is. A couple of different passages. Absolutely. John 14, 6. Jesus 
what is truth? Himself, right? He said, himself, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Good. There's another one I'm thinking of. Absolutely. So the Word of God. Jesus said the Word of God is truth. He, he's, when he was praying to the Father, he's asking the Father uh, to sanctify the people in the truth, and then he identifies what that is. Your Word is truth. There's no other way. There's no other thing. Your Word is truth. He, he doesn't say it's a truth or part of truth. It is truth. Um, and the, the psalmist agrees with Jesus in the Old Testament if you want to start turning to Psalm 119, um, when he talks about what the Word of God is and how it is to be evaluated, Psalm 119, if I can quit going past it, and we'll look at verses 159 to 163, it's a long chapter. Psalm 119, starting in verse 153, I'm sorry, 159 through 163. Consider how I love your precepts. Give me life according to your steadfast love. The sum of your word is truth, and every one of your righteous rules endures forever. Princes persecute me without cause, but my heart stands in awe of your words. I rejoice at your word like one who finds great spoil. I hate and abhor falsehood, but I love your law. That's, that's how we're to value the word of God. We are to love his word. It is essential that we not only hear the word of God, but that it is understood in truth. That's why we do Bible study, not just read it and come up with what I think it is and, and be okay with that. Right? We, need to, we need Bible study. We need to study the Word of God. And the Word of truth came to the Colossians by a man named Epaphras, as we talked about in the introduction to our study. Uh, verses 7 and 8 in our passage, you can turn back to Colossians 1, uh, end the first portion of Paul's prayer of thanksgiving that focuses on the proclamation of the gospel from Epaphras. Let's read verses 7 and 8 in Colossians 1. Uh, Just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant, he is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. And again, the, the it here that, he's, that they learned was the gospel. They learned it from Epaphras and Paul identifies Epaphras by a couple of different descriptors. Paul says he is our beloved fellow servant. We hear Paul talking about others in that way as well in, in his other letters. And he's a faithful minister of Christ on their behalf. Epaphras is a servant or bondservant. They serve the same master together, Christ. A bondservant at the time was sometimes voluntary, sometimes a voluntary servant of another, but mostly known as someone who was in a permanent position of servitude. And under Roman law, a bondservant was considered the owner's personal property. The Greek word often used of slaves in the Scriptures is doulos, meaning slave, but here the word used is syndoulos, meaning co-slave. 
or fellow servant. He's including himself in that. It's a partnership. Epaphras has also made known to Paul and Timothy the love of the Colossian church and the Spirit of Christ. Remember at the beginning, we talked about this at the beginning of our study, that Epaphras was the messenger. He brought information to Paul about the church. Therefore, Paul's addressing the issues in the church in this letter. Um, Epaphras is that source of information for Paul. And then moving on to verse 9 in our, in our passage, let's read that. And so, from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of His will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Okay, we're going to finish with verse 9 tonight, but next week we'll see. This, this flow, continues flowing into verse 10. There's that, what we're going to see right here, matters to what comes next. I don't believe we'll have time to go into all that tonight, but we'll connect it next week. But here, verse 9, Paul wraps up what he started with at the beginning of this letter. He, he brings his prayer uh, for the church full circle, so to speak. He started by telling them in verse 3 how they, they always, he and Timothy, how they always thank God for them when they pray because they heard of their salvation. Then he spent the next few verses talking about that salvation and all the fruit that it's bearing. And now he continues in this verse and the next few verses expressing his petitions to the Lord on their behalf and then praising God again in thankfulness. You can see how he wraps up what he started by saying here, and so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you. Some versions might say uh, for this cause or for this reason. Um, When he mentions the day they heard something, he's referring back to when they heard the gospel preached from Epaphras, the day they came to faith in Christ. Going back to the beginning. In other words, all of the things he talked about in verses 3 through 8 are the things he was thanking God for in the prayer that he mentioned in verse 3. And now he's emphasizing the fact that they started praying for them when they heard and have not stopped praying for them. He says, we have not ceased to pray for you. Paul is following his own instruction that he also gave to the Thessalonians when he said, pray without ceasing. Well, what can we? Last week we talked about the importance of praying for one another, and um, what it means when someone tells you that they're they're praying for you. I have another question along those lines, and that is, what what can knowledge of a person's prayer for you reveal about them and what they think of you and God? If someone tells you what they're praying for for you, what can that reveal about them and what they think about God? What do you think? By hearing how they're praying for you. Okay, so it would reveal, if I can expand on that, the love of brothers and sisters in Christ, right? That they have a love for brothers and sisters that they would pray for you. And you can see that because they say, I'm praying for you, right? What else can be revealed about what they think about God? The consistency of their faith, okay? The fact that they are praying, right? Okay? That they believe in traveling mercies, okay? Yeah, yeah. if that's what they're praying for you for, sure. <laughs> what else? Anything else?
Absolutely. Yeah, they, as they pray for you for, for healing or whatever, that re- reveals about them that their belief that they are praying to the one who can, the one who can heal, for sure. Right. Okay, yeah, so maybe they're praying from a place of experience, right? Yeah. It can also reveal to us uh, either good or bad theology, right? If, if, can't think of an example, but if they're saying, hey, I'm praying for you, and it's something really weird that doesn't really match up with Scripture, then it might reveal to you maybe they're kind of immature in their belief. Maybe they, they have a wrong thinking about God and, and what God does, you know? Um, so it can reveal that as well. But it's, it's interesting when, when people say they're praying for us, and if they tell you what they're praying for you about, we, as we talked about last week, that it's important to not only to tell people you're praying for them, but what you're praying about for them. Um, it's interesting how encouraging that can be to us and what it can reveal about what a person believes about God. Um, I brought this up last week when I mentioned uh, how Paul prayed for the Ephesian church. We looked at an example there. And um, we looked at it as an example of how we can specifically pray for one another as Christians. And now we have here in this text uh, from Paul uh, an example of how he prays specifically, um, and, but he tells the church what he is praying for them about. And uh, we know if Paul prays for them that it is, we can look at that, since this is the Word of God, we can look at what he prays for them as theologically accurate. I can pray that prayer for someone else as a believer because I have this example from Paul in the Scriptures, and I know it's not strange to pray for the thing that Paul prayed for for them. Um, And this prayer that we have here is like that prayer uh, for the Ephesians, very similar. And verse 9 reveals to us what Paul petitions God for on behalf of the church at Colossae, what, what he asks God for. And in the second half of verse 9, he says about what he's asking for, he says, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. <clears throat> we learn by this petition that God is the one who grants or brings about what is asked for. Um, Paul understands that people don't come to these things on their own. We don't just figure them out by ourselves uh, because we have great ideas or large brains, uh, but by the granting of them from the Father. He's asking the one who gives the knowledge. What does he petition God for? That, that they would be filled. Have you ever wondered what it really means to be filled with something in the biblical sense? We see it in the Bible in a lot of different passages, talking about being filled. If, I've wondered what that really means sometimes, um, especially when it comes to the Holy Spirit. In the Greek word there, it means to be not just filled, but completely filled. Or more instructively, I think, totally controlled is what we're talking about. This is the word used to describe the level of sorrow the disciples felt in John 16, verses 5 and 6, um, where it says, but when Jesus talking here, but now I am going to him who sent me, and none of you asks me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. 
That's, it's what's controlling them. And to describe the extent of the fury the Pharisees had because Jesus healed a man on the Sabbath in Luke 6.11, um, says, but they were filled with fury and discussed with one another what they might do to Jesus. So you can see this idea of control here. They're filled with fury, so much so that it's leading them to murderous thoughts. Right? They, are, they are controlled by this. And in each of those cases, including our text, this is the idea of being totally controlled by the thing that fills, whether it be sorrow or fury. But here Paul's asking God that they be filled or totally under the control of the knowledge of His will. He wants them to have a deep and thorough knowledge. Philippians 1.9 says, and, it is, and this is Paul again, and it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment. And we talked about it last week, we've talked about it before, how important knowledge is. And that's why he's asking here that they be filled with this, controlled by not their own knowledge, their own thoughts, but by the Word of God. Later, we'll see in this study, over in chapter 2, verse 3, that in Christ, all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are hidden. It's all found in Christ. And then in chapter 3, verse 10, we'll see that um, we as Christians are having our new selves renewed by knowledge. Right? That is, by the Word of God, we are all being renewed after the image of our Creator. We should understand that True knowledge comes from God, and it comes through the written Word of God as the Spirit gives it. And that's why Paul's praying for that for them, that the Spirit of God would grant them knowledge. But what do we see from our culture today in regard to true knowledge? What do do people say about true knowledge or truth? What was that? It's all relative. Yeah. Okay. What else? Okay, so truth is based on people's feelings. Okay. Somebody else said something? No? Yeah. I mean, the idea is there's no truth. There's no absolute truth. No absolute morality. What you believe is right for you is right and true for you. Someone else believes something totally contradictory. Well, that's true for them. But your truth is true for you. Uh, there's no hope in that. There's no, there's no solid ground on that. If everyone's truth is true for them, that doesn't work. It never works out. What about in the church? Do we have a difficult time standing on the truth of the Bible? And if so, why? Why would we have trouble standing on the truth of the Bible? What do you think? Okay, the truth reveals stuff in our own lives, yes, that, that we don't want to get rid of. So, therefore, personally speaking, it's, it can be hard to stand on the truth. What else? Right. We live in a sinful world. It is hard to make them understand. And the reason we have a hard time with the world sometimes is that the truth... Uh, is not appealing (laughs) because the truth that you're bringing to bear on a sinful world is that they're sinners and people don't want to hear that. 
They don't want to hear that truth. Uh, so it's hard, right? That Christians have a level of fear about sharing the gospel because we don't know what, what we're going to get back from that person or how it's going to be received. And not even in a sense, not even with, just with the gospel, but the morality of the Bible. If we as a church stand on the God's principles for life and what is right and wrong, it's, it's going to constantly clash with the world. And so it's hard, right? We become seen as whatever the world says. You're, you're mean, you're haters, um, you name it. Whatever the accusations are, simply because as Christians we want to hold to God's standard. We want to, what God says is evil, we want to agree and say that's evil. Uh, the world does not agree with that, so it's hard. We don't want to be called dogmatic or sometimes people would say we're, we're putting God in a box by saying, well, the Scripture says this. Well, you're putting God in a box. God can be outside of that. Well, well, that's true, but if He said it, He put Himself in that box. Right? He says this truth. It's not a box. That's truth. It's what God says about Himself. We can know for sure. We can know truth from the Word of God as He teaches us. And that's what Paul is asking for here, that God would give knowledge, not just general knowledge about just anything, but to be filled with the knowledge of His will. Can we know the will of God? What do you think? Can we know the will of God for our lives? Right here, the Bible. We can absolutely know the will of God for our lives. What is the will of God for our lives? That men would be saved through faith in Christ. That's the will of God. That Christians would be filled with the Holy Spirit. That's the will of God. That Christians would be sanctified. That's the will of God. That Christians would live lives of self-control. That's His will. Look over at 1 Peter. 1 Peter chapter 2. This has been a touchy one in the last year and a half. Verse Peter chapter 2, verse 13 through 15. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. So, we see there clearly in the Scripture, this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. What is good? Well, we again, we find that in the Scriptures. We find tons of it's not just the Ten Commandments. It's all of the New Testament and all of the instruction for God's people on how to live godly lives. That's doing good. Whether it's husbands loving their wives as Christ loved the church, or wives being submissive to their husbands, or children being obedient to their parents. All these things are instruction for us as, as Christians on doing good. And we know, I mean, that kind of can encompass all of it. It is God's will that we do good. 
the will of God is also that we are a people that will suffer. 1 Peter 4.19 says, Therefore let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. That's a hard one to swallow, that it could be God's will that we suffer. But it's right here in His Word. And what do we do in that? Well, let us suffer according to His will and entrust our souls to our faithful Creator. And 1 Thessalonians 5, 16-18, Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. His will, that we would pray without ceasing, that we would give thanks in all circumstances. That's not just good circumstances. That's even what we would consider bad circumstances, that we would give thanks. That is the will of God for our lives in Christ Jesus. And those are just some of the examples uh, that actually say the words, it is the will of God. There are many passages um, that are commands from God about how we are to live as Christians that are, that are no less the will of God, even if they don't say specifically, this is the will of God. This is something that many Christians agonize over when they pray about what God's will is for their lives. I'm convinced that the Bible tells us all we need to know in order to make good decisions in life, and God will guide us as we do so. What happens when Christians do not have knowledge? What happens when we don't have knowledge? What was that? We sin? Okay. Yeah. What else? Well, okay. It's harder to share your faith. That's, that's a huge one, lack, the lack of peace. Right? If, you, if we're going about our lives and God had given us no instruction on what to expect or how to view things according to the way He would view things, that would be scary. We would be wondering all the time. We'd be floundering around. But, and we tend to do that even though we have the Word of God. So we need to go where the knowledge is and learn what to think about those things. Isaiah 5.13 says, Therefore... My people go into exile for lack of knowledge. Right? Their honored men go hungry and their multitude is parched with thirst. That's what happens with lack of knowledge. God's people go astray. And they go into exile. You remember, in terms of our talk about discipleship here at the church, the goal, that is the goal of the Christian life, and God gives us what we need in the Scriptures for that, and and the, the goal in Ephesians 4, 13 and 14 is that we would, He has given us teachers and all these things that we, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children, be, be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes." That's why we want to come, we want to keep learning and growing and maturing so that we're not, so that when someone says what's not true and what doesn't come from the Word of God, that we're not shaken by it or in fear because of it, right? We are, we are anchored by the truth of the Word of God, and that's what Paul is praying for for them, that God would continue to give them 
that knowledge. And he says, in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Wisdom has the idea of being uh, able to collect and concisely organize principles from Scripture. And understanding speaks more about the application of those principles in everyday life. And these are both spiritual terms. Both have the Holy Spirit as their source. And that is why Paul says these are all spiritual. When we study the Word of God and we submit to the Word of God in our lives, He gives us knowledge and wisdom and understanding. And it's good for us to pray for that, too, as we open the Word of God. Pray for knowledge and wisdom and understanding. It it leads to godly obedience. It it leads to godly character in the Christian. It leads to uh, Christ-likeness. And Paul goes on, as we'll see next week, he goes on more to talk about the outcome of receiving this knowledge and understanding as he continues in, in talking about what he has prayed for for the people and what God, what only God can give to the Christian. And so we should be doing the same. We should be praying and asking God for wisdom and understanding. And we should be joyful and rejoicing, not only in our own salvation, but in the salvation of other people, and that we have that inheritance laid up for us in heaven. There's, we have the hope of that. All right, let's close in prayer for tonight. Father in heaven, we thank you for this night. We thank you, Lord, for your word, which is truth. I pray, Lord, that each person here who professes faith in Christ would, would have the conviction, Lord, that the Bible is the word of God and it is truth. And Lord, I pray that we would seek it out as a treasure, as valuable in our lives, And we ask, Lord, through your Spirit, we ask for knowledge and understanding that we may not be children tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine. There is so much out there, Lord, that is not from you, that is false. We ask, Lord, that you would protect us from that. Open our eyes to see it as we fill our hearts and our minds with your word, that you would bring your word to our our lips, to our minds, at just the right times. We praise you for the fact that you do this in our lives. We cannot do life on our own, Lord. We thank you for the the power and the strength that we have through your Spirit. And we thank you, Lord, that it is all because we heard the word of truth, the gospel, and we believed it. And you saved us. We praise you for it, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.